0: Hey everyone, this is Hannah, this is Texas 1031, and this is a Texas true crime podcast. Today I will be covering the murder of Carolyn Hahn in Bellevue, Texas. This was another listener-suggested case, this time requested by Megan, so thank you again, Megan. There were only two articles on this case, but incredibly, one was written by the daughter of one of the main detectives who worked on Carolyn's murder. So... For the sake of storytelling and keeping everything concise, I will primarily be using her information to tell Carolyn's story since it had the most detail and came from probably the most reliable source you could really ever ask for. However, if you have been craving an episode with some juicy questions and theories, stick around to the end for this one. I think there could be more to this case than we have been led to believe. So picture it. Mont Bellevue, Texas, 1985. Early that year, the Hahn family relocated from LaPorte, Texas to the up and coming city of Mont Bellevue. Many families flooded the new town as it offered the better opportunities and safety that LaPorte had recently been lacking. Little Carolyn Hahn would celebrate her 11th birthday in early June. In August, she would begin school as one of the new incoming sixth graders at Barber Hill Middle School and by September, she would be dead. Carolyn had a naturally innocent and timid look to her. She wore her brown hair, short and wavy, sporting what looked like a cute pair of pink lucite glasses. Carolyn was a sweet girl, and this made her acclamation to her new life in Mont Bellevue even easier. She immediately made new friends over the summer that carried on into the new school year. Carolyn was a smart young girl with a love for sports and the outdoors. Like most kids in the hottest months in Texas, her current obsession was swimming. Embarking into her first pre-teen years, Carolyn was beginning to yearn for some independence and wanted to prove that she was responsible for a girl her age. This was evident on that fateful Tuesday in September when Carolyn begged her mother Linda if she could stay home alone for a few hours rather than attending her younger brother, Scott's archery competition in the Highlands, a nearby town about a half an hour away from the Hans' apartment complex. Leaving their children at home without supervision wasn't a common practice for Fred and Linda Hahn, but for whatever reason, one that the Hans would most certainly come to regret, they obliged Carolyn's request and allowed the little girl to stay home while they took Scott to his archery meet. After all, they were only going to be gone for a few hours, and this was a chance for Carolyn to show her parents that she was trustworthy and mature, Carolyn did everything right. She didn't stay out late. She was home before dark, and she locked up the apartment. But, unfortunately, all of the preparation and forethought in the world couldn't have helped Carolyn that night. Around 9.20 p.m., Fred, Linda, and Scott all returned home to their apartment. The trio approached and entered like it was any other day. Pulling into a parking spot, the family spotted a young man, at most in his early 20s. "'coming from around the corner of the apartment building. "'The man was shirtless and scurried away quickly, "'wearing only his jeans, tennis shoes, "'and a stunned look on his face. "'The Hans ignored the young man. "'To them, it was probably just another resident "'who got caught off guard "'while he was walking around the complex. "'It was getting late, so they continued on inside. "'Unlocking the front door, "'the family walked into a strange scene. "'The apartment was quiet.' with only the sound of late-night TV playing in the distance towards the living room. The family's confusion soon turned to horror and panic as they came to the hallway connecting the apartment's kitchen and living room. There on the floor, their daughter and sister, little Carolyn, was lying face down, covered and surrounded by blood. Naturally, Fred, Linda, and Scott each processed the death of Carolyn in their own way, each mourning her and dealing with the act of finding her dead. Linda struggled with nightmares, and as most siblings would, Scott seemed to take his sister's murder quite hard. He became fearful of his own home, concerned that the killer might still be inside, waiting to attack again. Even after moving, the nine-year-old struggled daily with simply entering their new apartment, refusing to leave the family's car unless the entire residence was thoroughly searched from top to bottom ensuring him that a stranger or killer wasn't secretly lying in wait in a closet or behind the shower curtain. Carolyn's death didn't just haunt her family, but it would affect the entire town. Significantly, her murder would leave a career-long impact on the handful of men investigating her case. Bellevue's small five-person police department took charge of Carolyn's murder case. Later on, help was provided by the FBI as well. At the helm was Police Chief Fred Dodd. Different from her father, Fred, just to clarify. Only 37 at the time of Carolyn's murder, Chief Dodd began his career in law enforcement as a police officer in Houston. And before becoming chief in Mont Bellevue in July of 1984, he had also been the deputy chief of the Chambers County Sheriff's Department. Chief Dodd was nothing but committed to the case, bordering on obsession. It would take a few years to actually solve Carolyn's murder, and during that time, along with several other officers and detectives, Chief Dodd was known to work, day in and day out on the case, investigating upwards to 36 hours at a time. However, two years would pass, and in 1987, Chief Dodd soon realized he had his hands full. The investigation was amping up, and he knew he needed another man, possibly even more experienced than him, to assist. Detective Paul Schaefer had recently left the Baytown Police Department. He had just begun working for the Chambers County Sheriff's Department, and Sheriff Chuck Morris—honorable forensic files, since that sounds so close to Chuck Norris—he offered up Schaefer to help Montbellevue with Carolyn's case. So, Paul Schaefer is the father of the woman, Jen Schaefer, who wrote the article I mentioned at the beginning of the episode— Her blog, I guess, more so, not the article, her blog post uh, is called Crude Acts." She also has a podcast. I believe she has stopped recording since maybe April of 2022, but I think she has a handful of episodes. So go check it out if you want. So before being able to get his hands dirty, Detective Schaefer needed to be briefed on what had occurred up to this point in the murder of Carolyn Hahn. Based on the crime scene, Carolyn's body testimony from friends and family, and her autopsy, Chief Dodd took Detective Schaefer through the case and the evidence, giving him a rundown of where they currently stood in the investigation. The following is what Mont-Bellevue had deduced thus far. After receiving permission to stay home that evening, it is believed that Carolyn spent the majority of her night swimming with her friends until about 645 She walked the 40 yards or so from the apartment complex's pool to her family's unit, locking the door behind her. From here, the young girl would make a quick snack. After all, she had been swimming for several hours and was probably hungry. Based on evidence found in the apartment, and what I can only assume were the contents of her stomach during autopsy, it appears that she turned on a repeat episode of one of her favorite TV shows, Who's the Boss?, while she cooked a simple fried egg sandwich. Carolyn used a small three-inch serrated knife to prepare her toast, leaving the blade on the counter when she was finished. She ate her snack in peace, washing it down with a can of Coke. This was everything she always wanted, the apartment to herself, doing what she wanted to do with no one to bother her. I think everyone can relate to this moment, the simple moment of childhood freedom at last. Around 7.20, Carolyn heard a knock at the door, she cautiously opened it, being greeted by one of her girlfriends, begging her to return to the pool for just a bit longer before the sun set. Knowing her family would still be out for a couple of more hours, Carolyn seized the moment and headed down to the pool for another dip. A little less than an hour later, around eight fifteen, Carolyn knew it was time to head back to her apartment once and for all. She had some last-minute math homework to finish, and she wanted to make sure she was back before dark. Right on cue, the lights around the street and apartment complex began illuminating one by one, as the sun had its last few minutes in the sky. Carolyn walked the same path back to her apartment unit, as she had just done a couple of hours prior, locking the gate and front door behind her as instructed by her father Fred and mother Linda. Carolyn, a little chilled from the walk back to her apartment, was ready to change out of her wet suit and into something comfy. She hung up her bathing suit and put on a pair of cozy pajamas before grabbing her backpack and opening up her math textbook. While the television continued to play on in the background, Carolyn was unaware that a male intruder was currently prying open the door to her home with a screwdriver. Momentarily stunned, the brave little Carolyn soon sprinted to the apartment's landline phone and attempted to call for help. It is believed, based on her injuries that the man charged at Carolyn, snatching the phone from her hands, ripping the cord from the wall in the process. Using the heavy piece of plastic and metal he now had in his grasp, he bashed Carolyn across the head and face with the phone, sending her to the floor. Although she was already incapacitated due to the blow to her head, the man still took the screwdriver and painfully rammed the weapon into Carolyn's tiny neck. Before she would eventually bleed out due to her neck wounds, Carolyn managed to fight off her attacker and run to the kitchen. There, she grabbed the very knife she had just used to make her eggs and toast. Unfortunately, despite her best efforts, the 11-year-old was no match for the grown man. The intruder charged Carolyn once again, twisting her arm and throwing her body into one of the apartment's walls. There, he was able to knock the knife from her hand and take it for himself. Realizing the young girl wasn't giving up easily, the man took the serrated blade and slashed the left side of Carolyn's neck, severing her carotid artery. In a perverted and shameful afterthought, Carolyn's killer removed the lower portion of her pajamas, leaving her exposed and naked while she bled out on the carpet. After forensic testing, investigators would later confirm that a knife they believed to be the murder weapon had been haphazardly wiped off and tossed into a random drawer in the kitchen. Leaving the knife behind... The man took the phone piece instead, as well as the screwdriver he brought with him before rushing out of the apartment. The autopsy report told Detective Schaefer that Carolyn Hahn died from bleeding out from the stab wound to her carotid artery, like I already mentioned. Additionally, she suffered other stab wounds to her neck and body, along with the blunt force trauma to the face and head she sustained from the beating with the phone. It was evident that she also had defense wounds on her fingers and hands, Interestingly, although Carolyn was found with her clothing removed below the waist, there was no semen found on or in her body. The act of stripping off her pajama bottoms was most likely in an effort to stage the scene or simply to humiliate Carolyn post-mortem. In addition to several fingerprints found at the scene that didn't match the family or anyone in their database— Chief Dodd also provided Schaefer with a sketch of the man they believed to be the perpetrator. The description was that of a young white man with brown hair between the ages of 17 to 22, weighing around 150 pounds and about 5'8 in height. It was never explicitly stated, but I am assuming this was the description of the man the Hans saw walking near their apartment when they arrived home. The Mont-Bellevue officers contacted the FBI, requesting their assistance in the case, and by December of 1985, agents were able to put together a simple but helpful profile of who might have killed Carolyn Hahn. Profilers determined that the killer most likely lived in the apartment complex. He was possibly a high school dropout, and came from a middle-income family with a domineering female figure. He also would have probably attended Carolyn's funeral. At the point that Detective Schaefer had been called in to help, Chief Dodd had a few suspect options brewing, and for good reason. Law enforcement had been tipped off by fellow residents of the apartment complex that three men, Dale Dollar, Forensic Files, Sam Pettigrew, and Randy Plattson, desperately needed to be looked at for being involved in the murder of Carolyn. Witnesses told Chief Dodd that on the night that Carolyn was killed, Dale, Sam, and Randy, were drinking beers and sitting on a balcony that overlooked the pool. They were lurking around, staring and gawking at the young girls swimming at the pool. The men were overheard by neighbors making lewd and inappropriate remarks about the girls, especially Carolyn. Chief Dodd knew he had to follow this tip to the very end. This was the best lead they had received up to that point, and one. Two or all three of these men could have very well been Carolyn's killer. He went after them straight away and focused the entire investigation on them. Primarily, Dodd began to focus on twenty-one year old Randy Platsen. But soon, the witch hunt against the three young men would come to a halt once Detective Schaefer came on board. Schaefer started from the beginning, producing his own investigation separate from Chief Dodd. He went back to early interviews, old witnesses, and initial findings, researching them one by one. What he came up with told a different story, and produced a different suspect entirely. Working together with the blessing of the Chambers County Sheriff, Dodd and Schaefer had each of the original suspects, Dale, Sam, and Randy, polygraphed for good measure. They may have been creeps, but each of them passed their polygraph exam, so, with Chief Dodd temporarily appeased, it was now time to move on to Detective Schaefer's theory. Momentarily placing the three men on the back burner, Mont PD focused their efforts on a new suspect, a man they had already spoken to two years ago in 1985 26 year old Dwayne Heiser. On the day of Carolyn's murder, Dwayne was seen hanging out by the pool, supposedly watching the kids, similar to Dale, Sam, and Randy. Duane was a Taurus, being born on May 16, 1961. Duane was unassuming, and on paper, he was pretty normal and vanilla. He lived in the same apartment complex as the Hans with his wife and two young children. Duane was a laborer by trade and was a 7th grade dropout. Not too terribly uncommon for young men in the 70s and 80s. Duane was also known as a loner and kept mostly to himself and didn't have many friends. Additionally, Duane and his family moved to Livingston, Texas, shortly after Carolyn's murder. He wasn't a perfect match to the FBI profile, but he ticked a couple of the boxes. The sole reason they were even looking into Duane Heiser, however, was due to the conviction felt from a man named Wayne Klepper. Wayne had administered several polygraphs at the beginning of the investigation into Carolyn's murder and through a string of police contacts, Detective Schaefer was told to reach out to Wayne to get some new and compelling information. When the two men finally spoke, Wayne told Schaefer that he had pleaded with Chief Dodd to look into a man that was interviewed early on named Dwayne Heiser. He told him that Dwayne had failed his polygraph miserably and showed extreme signs of deception. Wayne said Dwayne eventually stormed out of the exam when the questions became too difficult to answer, whatever that means. But when Wayne said he tried to explain this to Chief Dodd and to get him to look into Dwayne Heiser, Dodd just wasn't interested. Deep in his gut, Wayne knew without a doubt Dwayne Heiser was Carolyn's killer. Another year would pass, and in March of 1988, police would finally locate Duane, hiding out in his home in the woods of Livingston. Duane was brought in for questioning, and after an hour of interrogation... He asked for an attorney and was released. However, just a month later, Duane would be arrested on outstanding traffic warrants in Polk County. Mount Bellevue knew this was their chance to go after Duane one more time, but Duane wasn't biting. He once again requested a lawyer, but this time asked if he could be released and go speak with his wife as well. His request was granted, but Duane was kept under surveillance. The next day, on April 15, 1988, Dwayne and his wife made their way to the Chambers County District Attorney's Office. Whatever Dwayne and his wife talked about at home had weighed heavy enough on his conscience that he was ready to come clean. Dwayne Edward Heiser confessed to the brutal murder of Carolyn Hahn. He provided his confession in written and typed form and in an audio recording at the site of the crime. It was supposedly Dwayne's idea to show the scene of the crime to officers and how the attack took place. After the recording, he also gave a recorded interview to police at the station, providing them in total three different confessions. Dwayne's confession, in my opinion, is quite interesting and somewhat different than the events the police initially theorized. I will address this in Questions and Theories. In his confession, Duane stated that he entered the apartment with every intention of raping Carolyn. He claimed he followed her into the apartment from the pool. He said he asked Carolyn a question about her father, then attempted to rape her, and struck her in the head when she fought him off, then stabbed her with a knife. Again, I will address his confession in questions and theories, but I can only assume that this is what Jen wrote to paraphrase Duane's confession and what I just read to you wasn't necessarily verbatim because otherwise that was a very basic confession. Hopefully that makes sense. On November 19th, 1990, Dwayne Edward Heiser was found guilty of the murder of Carolyn Hahn and was sentenced to 99 years in prison Dwayne's lawyer tried his best with the case, and had him enter a plea of not guilty so that he'd have a chance at an appeal. In his appeal, Dwayne claimed the case solely rested on his confession, and there was no other evidence that connected him to the crime. More importantly, his lawyer emphasized that due process had not been served, and that there was a major error in the motion to suppress the confession in his appeal. However, in May of 1992, his appeal was denied. Dwayne Heiser is currently in the Estelle unit in Huntsville, and covering this case is quite timely because Dwayne will most likely be released in just a few months in November of 2023. Meaning, he was available for parole in 2010, and even though not receiving parole, if he is released in November, that means he only spent 33 years out of his sentence of 99 years in prison. And that is the murder of Carolyn Hahn. So let's get to the questions and theories. There have been moments in some of the cases that I have covered when I go back after recording and I listen to the episode again and realize my opinion has changed. I pick up little tidbits of information or out-of-place evidence in the case that was never fully addressed or explained, and I immediately question my opinion and theory. It's usually rare, but this one is one of those cases but this time, I caught it before I released the recording. When I read through the two articles on Carolyn's murder, there were some discrepancies. Minor, but they were still there nonetheless. The discrepancies paired with Dwayne Heiser's confession made me begin to question what I assumed would be the outcome of this case. So let's take the discrepancies and dissect them and see what happens. Firstly, Jen Schaefer, remember, the daughter of Detective Paul Schaefer, wrote that Carolyn changed out of her bathing suit when she came in after locking the front door. The other article I used as a source quoted Chief Dodd, who said that part of Carolyn's red swimsuit had actually been ripped off. Next, Jen writes that Duane used a screwdriver to break into the apartment and to stab Carolyn in the neck. But again... Chief Dodd is quoted saying that there were no signs of forced entry, and not once did Dwayne ever mention a screwdriver in his confession. He also said he followed Carolyn inside from the pool, never claiming he had to break in or force the door open. How was a screwdriver even brought into this if Dwayne never mentioned it? It's not like they found a screwdriver at the scene. Did police just assume the suspect brought in a weapon one that produced a similar wound as a knife that could also be used to jimmy open a door without leaving signs of forced entry? I don't know, the screwdriver is a big question for me. It doesn't make sense, especially if Dwayne never brought it up. Yes, he was a laborer, but do most laborers sit at a pool all day with a screwdriver in their pocket? Like, why is the screwdriver even needed or involved if he didn't break in? The knife would explain the neck wounds without the screwdriver anyways. Chief Dodd was also quoted saying that he theorized that the intruder broke in from the back door. Did the apartment have a back door? I never saw a back door mentioned anywhere else at all. The Hans also supposedly had to unlock the front door when they arrived home. How does that make sense? Did he pry open the back door or the front door? How is the door still locked if he even followed Carolyn inside or broke in? Like, neither one makes sense. I just don't think the screwdriver fits in this story at all. Dodd, again, is also quoted saying that the intruder stole $60 worth of stuff. Like, what was the stuff? That sounds like it was more like a robbery gone wrong, if that's the case, but I don't know. I'm not saying that I doubt Jen. If anything, I tend to believe her more since she used her father and his notes as the source for her article. I more so doubt the random link I found, quoting Old Baytown Press and Houston Chronicle articles from interviews with Chief Dodd back in 1985. The media can and does get things wrong quite often, but on the other hand, fucking up the direct quotes from Chief Dodd, that's a little different. So again, I don't know. Let's take the other article quoting Dodd out of the equation, okay? What I primarily can't look past are the multiple discrepancies and variations that exist between Dwayne's simple and short confession and the narrative of the crime scene that police have put forward. Playing devil's advocate here, maybe Dwayne didn't confess to everything exactly, and maybe Jen took some creative liberties with her article leaving things out here and there or exaggerating other information for effect. I can see that to a certain extent. Putting the discrepancies aside, what about the stuff that was never even mentioned again or brought up in the first place? Mainly, the fingerprints. Did police test them against Dwayne? Did they actually match him? Where were the fingerprints even located in the apartment? What about the house phone he allegedly used to beat Carolyn with? Did he take that? Did police ever find it? Did Dwayne's wife even remember seeing a random house phone in their apartment? Since I'd assume he'd be running back to his apartment and not taking the time to dispose of it along the way. Speaking of his wife, what were her version of events? And what did she remember on September 10th when Dwayne came home? It was pushing 9pm at that point, so I'd assume she was home with the kids. What did she have to say about all of this? According to Jen, the wife was shocked and never even thought Dwayne could have been linked to Carolyn's murder at all. I think that's telling. Speaking of kids, maybe he wasn't at the pool for a nefarious reason. Maybe he was just there with his own children. Did anyone ever think of that? This is also a big question for me. Duane confessed that he went into the apartment solely to rape Carolyn, but then he didn't. He just pulled down her pants. Stranger things have happened, and sometimes rapists chicken out or can't get an erection, so their original plans suddenly get cancelled. But Carolyn was already dying, and not fighting back. The opportunity to rape her was still there. Maybe since she wasn't fighting and she was dying, that took all of the fun out of it? I don't know. After all, different categories of rapists do have preferences, But that would make me ask, did Dwayne have any history before or after Carolyn's death that would lead anyone to believe he was a child sexual abuser or violent in any way? According to the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, he has no other felonies to warrant him time in prison besides this murder charge. Did Dwayne even match the FBI profile? Remember what I said. Profilers determined that the killer most likely lived in the apartment complex, He was possibly a high school dropout, came from a middle-income family, had a domineering female figure, maybe went to Carolyn's funeral. So sure, he didn't make it past 7th grade, and he lived in the complex, but what was his socioeconomic status growing up, and what was his mother like? Did he even match the sketch? What was his height, weight, and appearance? I thought he skipped town soon after the murder, so did he even attend her funeral? The whole profile, honestly, is a bust to me. Could the Hans even ID Dwayne as the man they saw in their headlights, shirtless the night they arrived home and found Carolyn? This is also a sticking point in my mind. What was the information that was released to the public? Could Dwayne have used what was in the newspapers and on TV and what he heard to make this confession add up? I mean, remember what I read earlier. His confession was vague as fuck. Again, according to what Jen provided in her article, Dwayne never mentioned that he broke in. He said he followed Carolyn in. He never mentions a screwdriver. It was the police who bring a screwdriver into the narrative. Dwayne also never mentions the phone or the phone being taken or used to hit Carolyn. He said he beat her, but never what he beat her with. Besides following her in and asking her a question about her father, Dwayne mentions the knife and stabbing her, and he mentions trying to rape her, and that's all reports quoting the chief state she was stabbed with a knife and her clothes were ripped and pulled down, inferring that she was raped or someone had tried to rape her. If you think about it, Duane literally gives a confession using information that was known to the public and what he was probably asked about in his polygraph exam. More importantly than anything we have discussed this far is the fact that no physical evidence points to Duane. To me, based on the evidence and information we have been given, there are only three things that could be considered sketchy about Dwayne. That is, number one, he was deceptive in his polygraph, but we all know by now this is normal and it's also inadmissible, so fuck off. Number two, after the murder, he and his family moved to Livingston. Did anyone find out exactly when he moved? Did we find out maybe he had another reason why he moved? Like, did he have a job lined up? Did he and his family not feel safe after Carolyn's murder? So they moved. I don't know. And number three, the biggest one, is that he confessed. There is no denying that. What exactly he said verbatim, I am uncertain. But a confession does hold a lot of weight, especially in a courtroom. This is where I would normally say, you know, maybe there is more information out there that I am not privy to, and maybe all of my questions were confirmed and explained in police case files and records that I don't have access to. But I would venture to guess that if that information was out there, it would have been presented in the article written by Jen Schaefer. I mean, she had access to the ultimate source after all. All of this to say that to me, There are a lot of missing pieces and unanswered questions that I am left with, and I can say with great certainty that I am not 100% convinced that Dwayne Heiser killed Carolyn Hahn. I think that more evidence is needed and more explanation is required to determine that in this case. And I will leave you with that. If you have any case suggestions of your own, DM me on Instagram or email me as well. Thank you again, Megan, for the suggestion. I love cases like this that make you think and question everything. That's the funnest part for me. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will be back with more Texas true crime. So if anyone is listening, happy Halloween.